would open a Bible with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Try to get all situated here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Good to see you this morning. And looking forward to what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. We are in our, as Taryn has mentioned and as uh, Scott mentioned, uh, doing our Q&A this morning, which uh, I am planning on doing on the second Sunday and this time of each month. Now, uh, next month, we're going to have a little bit of a different uh, schedule because on the second Sunday of March, uh, we'll have Brother Phil Robertson with us for our workshop weekend. He'll be preaching for us in this time. So I haven't decided what I'm going to do about the Q&A yet. Uh, we've got to, Zach and I will have to sit down and figure that out and what we're going to do and how we're going to do that. But my plan is to continue to answer your questions. So last month, we had our first one, and uh, your support and encouragement for that was great. And then uh, the real compliment I felt was that you sent me a whole bunch of questions, and that's great, uh, because if we're going to have Q&A time, we've got to have questions. It's kind of important. So uh, send me those questions uh, in any form. I receive texts and emails, and also I'll take cards you have, but uh, I'm, I, anything that needs to be written down. If you just ask me verbally and you don't see me type it into my phone right then, it's gone. I'm not going to remember it. So let's uh, keep, keep asking those questions, and uh, I appreciate your support in that. Uh, basically, what we're doing in the Q&A is I'm answering questions that have already been given to me. Uh, I'm not taking questions this morning, but I'm going to try to uh, prepare for those things so that as I go through it, uh, I can give kind of a well-reasoned response, and so we can study some of the scriptures that relate to the questions. So uh, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1 the text says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So uh, this morning, the, the question that we're going to look at, really is just one question, because I felt it was worthy of, of pretty much all the time we're going to have uh, this morning, comes from our class that we've been having in the back on Deuteronomy. And you can see sort of where the nature of the question would arise as you read a text like this, particularly the idea in verse 2 there that it says you devote them to complete destruction and you show no mercy to them. And, and those tones are so harsh as God is talking about, uh, and Moses is speaking for God, talking about when they're going to go into the promised land and the Canaanites are going to be there and they need to wipe them out. And so uh, the question uh, could best be summed up as something like this. Uh, why, was the, why was killing the Canaanites okay? And then the follow-up question is, is this genocide? Are we talking about genocide? Now, now, genocide is a particularly visceral topic for us, the idea of exterminating a group of people uh, because of what we saw in the last century where this happened in several different places, most notably with Hitler's treatment of the Jews in World War II and the Holocaust. And you have all of these uh, regional conflicts, some in Africa and some in Asia, where one ethnic group will try to exterminate another ethnic group. And, and we look at that and we say, wow, that's awful. It's a terrible thing. And then we look at the Old Testament and some people say, well, look, didn't God say that was what they should do? 
that they should just wipe out these Canaanites so that there's no more Canaanites. And, and how is that different? Is it different? How do we make sense of that? And particularly, I think what's really troubling is the, the difference in tone that we see in something like this, you know, just completely destroy them, show them no mercy. And then in the New Testament, we're taught a, a different kind of ethic where we're not, you know, we're not supposed to hurt people and we're not supposed to uh, be aggressive in this way. And so people have a lot of trouble with that. And I've received a couple of questions in a Deuteronomy class about that. I told my Deuteronomy class I'll answer it later, which I call punting. And, uh, well, now the bill has come due, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about it this morning. So... Uh, I think you're going to feel like the first few minutes here, we're kind of treading water before we dive into it. But I want you to, trust me, we're going to get there, but I think we have to kind of get our feet wet in what we're talking about. So uh, first of all, let's come to terms with the Old Testament world. I think part of the issue when we talk about this is context and propriety. Um, we don't see the world the way they saw the world. We don't live in the kind of world that they lived in. And I think this cannot be overestimated as to how it makes things sound different in the Old Testament, particularly than what we experience today. They lived in a brutal world. Most people in the world that they lived in were polytheistic. They commonly fought wars. War was expected. War was a way of life. It was a culture that was an honor-shame culture, so very often wars would be fought over issues of shame and honor. Power was everything, and the powerful nations were the nations that had land and that had people. If you had land and people, you had power, and it was very common for the more powerful nations to oppress the less powerful nations. Okay, we don't really live in a world quite like that today, and, and our nations, we don't always see that, but that was the rule of the day in the ancient world. It was expected. It was part of life, and that plays into the Bible story as very often more aggressive, more powerful, more numerous nations are going to come and even exact judgment on Israel and Judah. Some of the actions of these people then, some of the ways that they think, are always going to be foreign with us. And I particularly want to say this, God dealt with them in a way that they understood, but may not be in a way that we understand, just like they did. So what I'm getting at is not that God did anything wrong with that. What I'm getting at is that sometimes it's going to sound strange to our ears the way God directs them, talks with them, engages with them, because they're a different kind of people. Beyond that, when we talk about killing the Canaanites and going in and, and conquest the promised land, I think we need to talk about God and his promises. I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. If you're going to talk about this, you have to talk about it in its biblical context. And the biblical context says that this is the culmination of some promises God made many centuries earlier to Abraham and repeated to different parts of uh, Abraham's lineage. The conquest of Canaan is an extremely extremely significant event in the Bible's history because God has promised something and for several hundred years his promise doesn't come true. So if we were living in those intervening years, we might even say, well, yeah, God said some stuff, but where is he? What has he done? And it is only in the conquest that you see God fulfilling these promises. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he says, you go to a land that I will show you. Turn the page to Genesis 13. After Abram separates from Lot, Genesis 13 and verse 14, 
The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then chapter 15, Genesis 15. Genesis 15 and verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be the servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So you have a little preview here that God tells to Abraham, this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is they're going to serve in another land for a long time, then I'm going to judge that nation, and I'm going to bring them back here. So, of course, he's talking about Egypt, and the judgment on Egypt is the plagues and all the problems that attend to that. And then he says they're going to come back here. So there are, there are promises that if the conquest of Canaan does not happen, there are promises that are left unfulfilled. We call it the promised land because of these promises. It was promised to Abraham and his descendants. The other part, if you look at verse 16 of Genesis 15, it says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I think very early on, God is setting the stage for the idea that the Amorites here are Canaanites. There are people that live in the land and their iniquity is not yet complete. So there's more evil that they're going to do before God basically evicts them from the land. But you've got the, the, the dual thread of on the one hand, God is promising something to Abraham, and on the other hand, there is a looming judgment against these people, and that the conquest is going to fulfill both of those. It is going to both be a, a fulfillment of promise and a fulfillment of judgment on the Amorites. Just like God judges Egypt, as he says in that verse, so he's going to judge the Amorites. But it's not quite yet in the time of Abraham. But if God doesn't bring Israel into the land, then this promise remains unfulfilled, and God's promises are not true. So there is an urgency to that. I also want, before we dig into the text about killing the Canaanites, I want to talk about God and judgment. God reserves the right to judge people for their evil. And in particular in the Old Testament, I think we're very familiar with this in the Old Testament, if you really think about it. In the Old Testament, very often that is physical. It is physical death as a result of sin. So God judges Israel by allowing the Assyrians to attack them kill some of them, and take them into captivity. God allows the Babylonians to come and judge Judah and kill some of them and take them into captivity. God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens? They die. The people die. Okay, That, that is the judgment of God, and, and it is painted in no uncertain terms in the Bible that that is judgment from God. God judges Edom. God judges Tyre, God judges Babylon. He talks a lot about judging Babylon. Okay, and how does that, what does that look like? Well, it does not look like God striking down from heaven all the time, sometimes, Sodom and Gomorrah, but most of the time what it looks like is, is armies and war. Some people dying. And some people maybe being taken off their land and, and taken into a foreign land and made slaves. But the basic idea is people die because they're not responding properly to God. That's the idea of judgment in the Old Testament. It looks like battles and losses and submission. And sometimes the people who die 
are innocent. Sometimes it's the children. I mean, we're talking about a war. And there's no guarantee that in a war, nobody innocent is going to die. Even though innocents may die, it still is not that the judgment of God is not somehow wrong. God is going to judge, and sometimes people are going to suffer as a result of that. Sometimes people who may not deserve to suffer are going to suffer because of that, and God's righteous judgment is still righteous. Uh, So when we talk about judgment, I think we need to start looking at how God builds a case against the Canaanites before he sends his people in. I want you to go with me to Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 4. God says, or this is Moses, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of their wickedness, the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Do you see it? You see those two threads we talked about? He's going to fulfill his promises, but it's also about their wickedness. Don't think that this is because you're so awesome. It's because they're so bad. And somebody's going to ask, well, why is it okay when Israel is also bad? Well, this is what we learn about judgment in the Old Testament, is that God judges in righteous ways in his own time. You remember Habakkuk. Habakkuk is frustrated with how evil the people are in Israel. And he cries out to God, God, when are you going to do something? And God says, oh, I am. I'm sending the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't sound right. The Babylonians are worse than we are. And God says, well, I'm going to judge them too, but just not right now. You didn't ask about them. And that's the, that's the issue here. God is going to judge in his own time, but God is using Israel as the means by which he's going to judge the Canaanites. That's what he's saying. It's because of their wickedness that you are getting this land and because I promised it. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. I want you to see that God makes a case here for why the Canaanites deserve judgment. Leviticus 18 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Drop down a bit, uh, verse 21. He says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. That is a a practice of the Canaanite tribes. A little further, verse 24, Leviticus 18, 24. Do not make your... By the way, Leviticus 18 has a lot of prohibitions of a sexual variety about different sexual violations. Leviticus 18, 24. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. 
So you see, this is a, this is a judgment text. And he is saying that the land is going to vomit out the people who are evil. They've corrupted themselves in it. And so that's what's happening. The Canaanites are going to be thrust out because they have become unclean. And he says, if you start doing what they do, what's going to happen to you? Same thing. So we're talking about judgment here and that God is going to bring judgment on these nations. So we have to understand the texts that talk about the destruction of the Canaanites as judgment texts from God. Sometimes innocents die in the process. Sometimes that happens, but that is not meaning that somehow God doesn't have the right to judge or that his judgment is somehow warped. Instead, that's just a part of the way that works. So Israel has a right to the land because it was promised by God to Abraham. The Canaanites who lived there deserve to be punished. The land has vomited them out. And what we read the Israelites doing during the conquest fits under these two headings. So now let's talk about these texts. I want to ask the question, what does God actually command? Let's go to Exodus chapter 23. We're going to look at several texts here. Exodus chapter 23. And I want to start by saying sometimes we have this this vision of the conquest, and I think that it comes from the first part of Joshua, uh, that the conquest is that the Israelites just come in and kind of sweep over the land and exterminate everything, okay? And they kill everybody everywhere they go, and they just sweep over, and suddenly we have a completely conquered land. And there are some problems with that view that I want to begin to show you and, and I think it'll help us kind of clarify what's going on when God tells them uh, to show no mercy and to, be, be, uh, to exterminate or to, to destroy uh, the people of Canaan. Exodus 23, verse 28. Exodus 23, 28. He says, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods... It will surely be a snare to you. Now, I want you to notice God talks about driving them out little by little. Okay, not all at one time. And the reason that he gives is because the the land's going to become desolate and the wild beasts will multiply while they're doing all this conquesting. And he says, no, that's not the way this is going to work. You're going to do it gradually. Okay, which is a little different from that view I mentioned of Joshua where they just sort of sweep across in one big thrust and then the, the Canaanites are just completely exterminated. So the command then, if you look at it in verse 31, you shall drive them out before you. The idea is that God is expecting the Israelites to kick the Canaanites out of the land. He wants them to drive them out. And we're going to see this again and again, particularly in the book of Judges, that that's the expectation. You get them out of the land. The the opposite of driving them out is... Letting them stay, making treaties, hanging out, marrying their daughters. That's the opposite of driving them out. But what you don't see here is 
completely exterminate everyone, you know, kill them all, man, woman, and child. You don't see that language here because the main goal is to say, let's fulfill the promise of God and let's exercise judgment. Judgment coming in the form of war and exile. You're out of your place, just like the, the Israelites are later going to be judged for their sin. Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33. Numbers 33 and verse 50. Numbers 33 and verse 50. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. Numbers 33 verse 53. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those, who, those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So... Drive out is the command. You see it a couple of times, and then it says, if you do not drive out, there's going to be this problem. But the, the issue is the people are in the land. The land is yours. You've got to get them out. So there are going to be wars that are fought in order to drive them out. There are going to be what uh, one scholar calls disabling raids, raids where they go in and they attack and sort of cripple certain groups or cities. Okay, but the idea that there is complete extermination or something that could be even called genocide is not really what this is describing. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. And verse 18. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. So thrusting out all your enemies. So with that, all that context in mind, now I want to read uh, the, the text that we began with in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, now I think we have a little bit better feel for what is expected when they go into the land. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be quickly against you, kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. I believe what he's saying, look specifically at verse 2. When the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You have to destroy them because the alternative in the text is that you let them stay in the land and kind of hang out. You let them stay there, and verse 3, you intermarry with them, and 
you show them mercy and you make treaties. In other words, you say, let's just settle down, let's end the hostilities, let us live here and you live there. And God says, that's not going to work. I don't want them living with you. I don't want them in the land. That's part of their judgment and it's part of my promise to you. And if it does happen, they're going to be a snare to you. Over and over, God says that. It's not only that this is what I'm telling you to do, it's going to be the worst for you. And if you know anything about biblical history, you know that is exactly what happens. When they fail to drive out the Canaanites, it is worse for them. And it is a problem for the rest of Israel's history, at least up into the return from Persian captivity. So, driving out and dispossessing is different from total annihilation. That's different. The focus and the point is different. But I don't want to sugarcoat the fact that there are commands to destroy. I mean, you see that right here in, uh, in verse 2, devote them to complete destruction. Let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 20. In Deuteronomy 20, in verse 16, this text is, is a contrast between the typical way of fighting, which is... Uh, up in verse 10, you know, you draw near a city, offer them terms of peace, that kind of thing. So that's typical, but when you go in to conquer the land of Canaan, it's not typical. I don't want you to offer terms of peace because that's not what's happening. We're, we're judging, and God wants them out. So verse 16, Deuteronomy 20, 16, But in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote, to them, devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So he says clearly the danger is that if you let them live and let them continue in the land, that they're going to influence you and teach you to do evil. But Again, I have to say that commands like this are situated in the broader context where the point is thrusting them out of the land. Now, I'm sure there are situations where they do kill, and I'm sure there are situations where there is a certain brutality to that, and for that I would appeal back to the idea of judgment. But I, I want to make it clear that this is not just mass extermination. That's not the goal, even though there are passages like this that seem to hint at that kind of thing. But if I'm going to say that, we've got to talk a little bit about Joshua. Uh, so let's just briefly turn over uh, to some of the chapters in Joshua. I want to go to Joshua 11. <clears throat> so Joshua 6 through 11, uh, where we begin with Jericho and then Ai and then a number of cities all in a row. Uh, it describes how Joshua, and it repeatedly uses these terms, uh, none left, none survived, they left none that breathes. Um, and they put all the inhabitants to the sword, and, and very strong language that seems to say that these people all were killed, all of them, exterminated completely. Uh, Joshua 11 and verse 23, it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. These statements in Joshua 6 through 11 that talk about these people, none of them survived, and Joshua took the whole land, they cannot possibly be literal. They cannot possibly be literal. I can be certain of that because 
if you open the book of Judges, you know that for one, the land did not have rest from war. And for two, they did not conquer the whole land. And they did not drive out the Canaanites from the whole land. In fact, the whole point of the first chapter of Judges and beginning of the second chapter is that they refused to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And sometimes they made treaties with them, but most of the time it just seems that they just agreed that we're just going to kind of live here in sort of open hostility or in subjugation. So the point I'm trying to make with that is I believe that what's happening in Joshua with these statements of he conquered the whole land is that we're really focusing on these ideas, God fulfilling his promises. In fact, there is a clear statement that God, uh, not a word of what God promised was not fulfilled. So that, that what we're seeing is Joshua was the agent of God's fulfillment. Joshua obeyed God. Joshua conquered these people. Joshua did this work. But I don't think we're intended to see that Joshua completely vanquished the Canaanites for good and that everybody died. Because, again, if we keep reading, we know that they didn't actually all die. We know that they continue to survive and continue to live alongside the Israelites. In fact, if there's nothing else, we, we study the book of Judges in the back class that Zach taught uh, in the last quarter. If, if there's nothing else you learn from that part of Judges, it's that over and over again they are troubled and oppressed and influenced by the Canaanite people that live among them. And so they are continually in trouble uh, because of that. So, I believe what we're intended to see is that God did this work through Joshua, through these kind of what I call disabling raids, and they went to one part of the country and, and killed, and, and then if the people didn't leave, then they're expected to keep going and attacking until the people leave, but, or they die. But sometimes they didn't obey God, and I think that's what the book of Judges, especially chapter 2, is emphasizing. So, again... Somebody's going to ask about innocent people in all of this. I've addressed this briefly, but I'm not suggesting that, that all the destruction passages that we're reading are not literal or anything like that. I'm suggesting that there is a, a little bit of a deeper context than we sometimes give it when we just look at those passages. And I'm saying that the point seems to be about driving them out of the land. All right, well, somebody's going to ask the question, uh, what about the Amalekites? Oh, man, we have three minutes. I can't talk about the Amalekites. So 1 Samuel 15 uh, talks about Saul and the Amalekites. King Saul, remember, who was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Utterly destroy. And a couple of times in that text in 1 Samuel 15, it actually says and is affirmed by Saul and by Samuel that he did destroy the Amalekites with the exception of the king. He just didn't destroy all the animals. And so the, the emphasis is on how he spared the animals as spoil when God had told the spoil to be destroyed. But what's interesting about that is that even though it says repeatedly Saul utterly destroyed the Amalekites, just like the language about the Canaanites, the Amalekites are not utterly destroyed. We know that because they come back in chapter 27. In chapter 30, they come and steal all of David's and his group of men's wives. In fact, there must have been a lot of them. So if they were utterly destroyed... How does that work? I think what I'm trying to get at there is that utterly destroyed didn't necessarily mean completely wiped out. It wasn't intended to be taken literally as much as it was intended to say there was a tremendous destruction here. So maybe there was a city that they were completely vanquished or maybe it was just something where he, he just destroyed them and they were given a great blow. But it's certainly not the idea of genocide or the idea of complete extermination uh, in, in Amalek. 
But the point with the Amalekites is not, well, Saul didn't kill enough of them and God was mad because he didn't kill enough. Uh, it is more about obedience there, particularly about the, uh, the animals. All right, I'm going to talk real quickly here, so everybody get ready, because i got one minute. Are there two gods in the Bible? Sometimes what's really behind a question like this is the idea that God in the Old Testament seems very different from God in the New Testament. And I believe that, that sometimes that is a point of emphasis that we emphasize so much the forgiveness and love of God in the New Testament that we neglect the aspects of judgment that exist in the New Testament. All over the New Testament. The New Testament is what teaches us about hell. And the New Testament teaches us about Jesus coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. There is judgment in the New Testament, and there is also mercy and forgiveness in the Old Testament. Those of us who are in Deuteronomy right now, we're, we're studying that. We're learning about God and his love and his concern for his people and how he chose them even though they didn't deserve it. And sometimes I think we, we just kind of neglect both of those. We don't talk about judgment in the new. We don't talk about God's compassion in the old. And so we end up with a caricature of God. There aren't two gods in the Bible. It's the same God. And sometimes I think the problem here is that we get so much information in the Old Testament, so many different stories of so many different nations over so long a period that we don't see that what's really happening is the same thing happening in the new, God appealing to people, people rejecting or accepting him, and then receiving consequences as a result of that. Final word about God's wrath. It's more than one word, but not a lot more. When, when people are sacrificing their babies and calling it religion, when people are practicing fornication and calling it holiness, when people treat themselves and each other as if there are no rules besides whatever they want, how can God not be angry? How can God not be angry when people do evil, especially when their evil hurts others so often? I think we need to think a little more about God's wrath in that way, that it is not something that's just terrifying and frightening. It is something that's natural because of love. If God loves people, then God's going to be frustrated. God's going to be wrathful when others don't care about others and they just want to hurt others. There's more to say about that, but we're out of time. I appreciate your attention, and uh, if you have other questions about that, feel free to talk to me about it. We'll be dismissed for our classes.